Amen. So if you have your Bible, please turn with me to uh, the very end of Luke chapter 22. Uh, Jesus has just been handed over to the officials. He was betrayed by Judas with a kiss. He has been abandoned by his followers, his disciples. Even Peter, who said that he would go with him to the inn, has denied him three times. That Jesus is, is basically alone. He um, is facing a, a mob that is out to get him, to see him punished unjustly. And at the very end of our text last week, we saw Jesus being beaten, being um, abused, being blasphemed by evil people as they, they hauled him to the home of the high priest. And so today we are continuing as Jesus is put on trial. And so again, we're, we're looking at, at Luke chapter 22. And I'll begin reading in verse 66. And if you don't have your Bible with you, this is also printed in your bulletin. When day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes. And they laid and they led him away to their council. And they said, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, You say that I am. Then they said, What further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man leading our nation, or uh, this man misleading our nation, and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee even to this place. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. When he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him and was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by vehemently accusing him. And Herod, with his soldiers, treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then arraying him in, a, in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day. 
for before this they had been at enmity with each other. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people, and he said to them, You brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. But they cried out together, Away with this man, and release to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus. But they kept shouting, Crucify, crucify him. A third time he said to them, Why? What evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. And their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, for whom they asked. But he delivered Jesus over to their will. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we, we find it difficult to study this teaching on the trial of our Lord and Savior. But I pray that you could use this passage to instruct our hearts and our minds, that you would shine it into the dark places and change us through it. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So you could imagine going home after this service and then having the police knock on the door of your home, call you in for questioning, and then they say that you have committed a, a crime. Uh, they throw you into prison. They put you on trial. They bring false witnesses. Uh, they distort the facts to make you look guilty. And then you are sentenced to death and put on death row. You lose your family. You, you lose your friends. Everyone assumes that you are guilty, that you have done something wrong. And if you imagine that happening to yourself, you can see how terrifying it would be, how awful it would be. And that's what we see happening to Jesus, to our Savior in this text. That he is the, the only truly sinless person in history. Yet we see him being handed over to the religious leaders. He is put on trial unjustly. And he's actually tried four times. And there was even a, a law at the time that you couldn't be tried and convicted of the death penalty on the same day. But that's exactly what happens. He is put on trial four times. And we're, so we're going to look at each of these four trials individually, because I think that each of the trials here reflects a way in which we also put Jesus on trial today. And so we see a theological trial a political trial, a cynical trial, and a diabolical trial. And so first, let's look at the theological trial. 
And this is what we see in, our, in your Bible in verse 66 to verse 71, the very end of chapter 22. As I said, Jesus is hauled before this assembly called the Sanhedrin. These are the, the religious leaders. These are the elders. This court was composed of competing parties in Judaism, the Sadducees, the Pharisees. In verse 66, it says that it was comprised of both priests and scribes. Uh, they were uh, the assembly that carried out a lot of administrative duties, even though they were under the authority of Rome. Uh, but they also carried deep theological weight. These were the, the theological experts, the, the people who folks in Israel would look at and say, these are the, the theologians, those who understand the law. And it's almost surprising, but maybe tragically not as surprising and that it's the religious leaders, the religious assembly, who are the first people to put Jesus on trial. And since these are theologians, they ask Jesus a theological question in verse 67. They say, if you are the Christ, tell us. And you probably know that the word Christ isn't Jesus' last name that it's his title, it means Messiah, it means anointed one. And so essentially the religious leaders are saying, are you the Messiah? Are you the anointed one predicted in the Old Testament? And Jesus answers them in verse 67, and he says, if I tell you, you will not believe, and if I ask you, you will not answer. And so Jesus refuses to answer their question, that he follows the, the wisdom of Proverbs 26, verse 4, uh, that says, answer not a fool according to his folly. That Jesus here doesn't answer the fool according to his folly. He doesn't directly answer their question, even though he is the Messiah. But even though he doesn't directly answer their question on their own terms, he still makes a bold claim about his own identity. If you look down at verse 69, it says, uh, he says, But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. And you look at that, that from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. And Jesus is alluding to two Old Testament passages. The first is Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 to 14. And I'll go ahead and read that because I think it, it casts light on what Jesus is saying. Um, Daniel sees this vision. He says, I saw in the night vision, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And, he, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, and all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And so Jesus then is identifying himself with the Son of Man in Daniel 7. But then he also alludes to a second passage, which is Psalm 110, and we looked at that actually for our Christmas Eve service this past year, 
And it's where King David says, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And again, Jesus is identifying himself with David's Lord seated at the right hand of God. And so you can see what Jesus is doing, that, that he's, he's not accepting the premise of the question. He's saying, I don't define Messiah in the political, earthly way that you define Messiah. But if you want to know who I am, I am the, the Son of Man from Daniel 7. I am David's Lord from Psalm 110. And you, religious leaders, will see me seated at the right hand of power, coming in the clouds of glory. That you are, are putting me on trial, but one day you yourself will be on trial before the Son of Man. And are you ready to stand before that day? But then tragically, the religious leaders don't hear that and examine themselves or their assumption about the Christ, about the Messiah. But they actually start to see a way to trap Jesus in his words. Because in Jewish theology, you could be the Messiah without claiming to be God. You could claim to be the Messiah without committing blasphemy. But blasphemy was something that could be punished by death. And so if they could find Jesus claiming to be God himself then they could say, that is too much. That is blasphemy. We need to find him guilty of a capital offense. And I think that even they probably realized that in Daniel 7, the figure at the right hand, the, the Son of Man has a divine identity, divine glory, divine power. I think they realized that the Messiah pictured in Psalm 110 has this divine identity. And so they say, are you the son of God then? This second theological question. And that's probably one of the most important questions that anyone could ask. That's the question that we ourselves should ask about Jesus. Is this the son of God? But it's a question that has already been answered in the book of Luke. And we've seen it throughout this series as we've worked our way through this gospel, think back to the annunciation of his birth from the angel in Luke 1, verse 35. The angel said, he will be called holy, the son of God. You can think about the voice from heaven at his baptism saying, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. You can think about the, the voice from heaven at the transfiguration in Luke 9, 35. This is my Son, my chosen one, listen to him. You could even think of the, the voice of the demons as Jesus cast them out throughout his ministry that would cry out, you are the son of God, that the witness to the identity of Jesus as the son of God is clear and it's plain. It's plain in Luke, it's plain in the other gospels. But yet here's Jesus being asked the question again, are you the son of God? And he answers it again in verse 70. And he, he says, you say that I am. And at first you look at that and you say, well, why doesn't he just say yes? 
But if you go to Mark chapter 14 and you look at the exact parallel of this from another gospel writer looking at it from a different perspective, listen to how Jesus answers the question. He says, I am, ego eimi in, in the Greek, this, this claim to divinity, I am the son of God. And you say, well, which is it? Is it, is it Luke or is it Mark? Did he say, I am the son of God? Or does he say, you say that I am the son of God? And I think that if you put those together, then the meaning starts to come out, that, that really he was saying both of those simultaneously. And one commentary summarizes it like this. This is, Jesus is essentially saying, you religious leaders have worded the question, and I will not deny that I am the son of God, but I would have worded it differently. That would be the wordy way to say what Jesus is saying, that, that he's saying, again, I don't fully accept the premise of your question, but if you're going to press it, yes, I am the son of God. And it's clear in the context that that's what he was saying because the religious leaders tear their garments. They cry out, what further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. So they're saying, we don't need any more witnesses. We know that he's guilty. He has incriminated himself. He has committed blasphemy right here in this court before us. We are all witnesses now. And so now we can haul him down and try to sentence him to death as a blasphemer, identifying himself with God. And so again, we see this religious trial Religious people putting him on trial theologically and finding him guilty. And one of my favorite books is Brothers Karamazov um, by uh, Dostoevsky. And, and it's, a, it's a great book. It's about three brothers uh, dealing with the death of their father, who is a very wicked man. And, and one is the, the brother who's a, a Christian. One is an atheist, academic, and the other one is... The, you know, the hedonist who's just going to live up life in this, in this world. And the, the, the atheist brother, Ivan, is talking to his Christian brother, and they're discussing the existence of God, they're discussing religion, and it's probably the most famous chapter in the book called The Grand Inquisitor. If you were to read an excerpt in a literature class, that's probably the chapter that you would read. And Ivan, the atheist brother, presents this, parable, this hypothetical scenario where, where Jesus comes back during the Spanish Inquisition. And he begins to heal and he performs miracles. And so the Spanish Inquisition, these church officials, haul Jesus before their tribunal and they put him on trial. And as they put him on trial, they find him guilty a second time and they sentence him to death. And there's a lot going on in the chapter, but a part of the point is that the, the religious establishment, the church, modern people would put Jesus on trial a second time if we had the chance. That religious people like to talk about God. We try to pretend that, that if we... Uh, we're at the time of Jesus that we would be the people who follow Jesus, who respect Jesus, who listen to Jesus. But in reality, many religious people, even many in the name of the church, 
or in Christianity would actually oppose Jesus. They wouldn't like the real biblical Jesus that much. And you can think of this even today, that, that Jesus says in his word, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And there are religious people who would put that on trial, would say, no, there are many ways to God. We don't want that exclusive Jesus. Or Jesus taught that we are sinners before a holy God, that we need to repent and turn to God to be forgiven. And there are many religious people who want really what sociologists call moralistic therapeutic deism, which is just a fancy way of saying that we want a religion that makes us feel good, that, that meets our individual psychological needs, but that is completely devoid of a sense of, of sin and forgiveness and atonement and personal relationship with, with God. That's the kind of religion we want. And if the real Jesus came into many churches and many religious assemblies, we wouldn't like what he has to say. We would put it on trial. I even think that many religious people in conservative, reformed Presbyterian circles would want to put Jesus on a theological trial. Because so many of the moral teachings of Jesus sound extreme. He says that it's, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. He says that if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. He says if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. He says unless your holiness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of God. That the, the moral teaching of Jesus sounds extreme. And that many people, even in the name of the gospel, might put Jesus on trial as a legalist because of his extreme moral demands. And of course, Jesus isn't a legalist. He, he clearly taught grace. But religious people wanting to live the way that they want to live might put him on trial because of his moral teaching. That what we want is a Jesus fashioned in our own image. We want to conform Jesus to what we want. We want a, a woke Jesus or a traditional Jesus. We want a Democrat Jesus or a Republican Jesus. We want a, a socialist Jesus or a capitalist Jesus. That we, we want a Jesus who conforms to everything that we already believe. And when we confront the real biblical Jesus in the Gospels, either we ignore what it says or we put him on trial in our hearts and we find him guilty. And that's the first trial that we see here, a theological trial. But now let's look at the second trial, and it's a political trial. And that's what we see in verse 1 to 5 as we move into chapter 23. That after finding Jesus guilty of blasphemy, the Sanhedrin hauls him down to Caesar, um, or at least the authority of Caesar, before Pontius Pilate, because they know they can't carry out the death penalty by their own authority. They need the authority of Rome. And you say, well, who is this Pontius Pilate? I mean, we said in the, in the creed a few minutes ago that Jesus was crucified under Pontius Pilate. And there's a lot that could be said about him historically, and I won't bore you with all of the facts of his life that we know, but he was the governor of the province of Judea. 
and he was known as a brutal person. Think back to Luke chapter 13, verse 1, where Jesus says that, or the, rather the disciples say to Jesus, um, what, how should we understand the, the death of these innocent people, the, the Galileans whose blood Pilate mingled with their sacrifices? And so they're alluding to a, a massacre of innocent worshipers by Pilate. And you read of other historical events perpetrated by, by Pilate. Um, he was a, a violent, brutal person who was interested in keeping the peace and the authority of Rome. And so here comes this Jewish assembly to put Jesus on trial for blasphemy before the Roman court. And the religious assembly begins to lay out their accusation. But ironically, they don't even mention the claim of blasphemy, which is what really they tried to find him guilty of in their own assembly. But look at what they, they say in verse 2. They say that we found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, is, is Christ a king. And so I think that they recognize that the theological trial is not going to interest this representative of Caesar, that this is a political man. And if they're going to get him in trouble with Rome, they need to find a political charge, political accusations. And so they lay out three new charges against Jesus. The first charge is that he's misleading the people. And apparently Pilate doesn't find that convincing, rather vague. The second charge that they lay out is that Jesus told people not to pay their taxes. And of course, that's just false. There were witnesses who saw Jesus in the temple say, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar, to God the things that are God's, that that would be easily refuted. But then the third accusation is that Jesus is the Christ, or he claims to be the Christ. And then they kind of define it politically for, for Pilate. They're saying, you know, the Christ is really a king. And so he's claiming to be a political figure. He's a political threat to Rome. And so that's where Pilate picks up on this because Rome would not put up with anyone who would question the authority of Rome or the authority of Caesar. And so Pilate says, are you the king of the Jews? And you could say, if you were to put it another way, he's saying to Jesus, do you want to undermine the power and the authority of the Roman Empire? And this is the question that kings and governments and rulers have asked of Jesus and his followers ever since. Do you want to undermine our political authority and our political power? Are you claiming to be the king? And political power often doesn't like the idea that Jesus is a king. And you can think of the, the 17th century in England when the, the king of England claimed to be the head of the church, claimed both temporal and spiritual authority. And Christians, uh, nonconformists to the Church of England, like Presbyterians, um, said, no, the king is not head of the church. No mere human is head of the church. Christ alone is head of the church. And the king didn't 
like that idea that the Christ alone is head of the church, that he wanted to be the head of the church, and so he persecuted religious dissenters who held to the lordship of Christ over the church. And he's essentially saying, followers of Jesus, do you want to undermine my authority, my political power? And that's the same thing that has happened in modern times as well in totalitarian nations around the world where dictators don't like the, the claim that there's a king above earthly kings. And so they'll haul Jesus' followers before the tribunal, say, do you want to undermine our political authority? Are you a revolutionary? Are you saying that you don't need to follow our laws? Are you following another king, another ruler, another dictator, another master besides us? And they often find Christians and Christ guilty politically. And if you think about it, though, to this question, do you want to undermine political authority, Jesus? Then on the one hand, I think Jesus would say no. He said, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And he even told Pilate in John 18 that my kingdom is not of this world. Those words aren't recorded in Luke, but he said them while he was on trial. My kingdom is not of this world. But on the other hand, I think that Jesus would say yes, that I am here to topple all earthly authority, all earthly power, that I am the King of kings and the Lord of lords, that I am the ultimate Lord of conscience. I am the final authority. I'm the one who created all things, sustains all things, upholds all things, that every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that, that Jesus Christ is Lord. And that is an affront to the claim of political leaders, of, of monarchs, of dictators. It's also even an affront to Western individualism, that, that we may not claim a king or a dictator, but we claim the kingship of our own hearts, of our own ability to choose, that we want to be the lords of our own lives, the, the masters of our own destinies. And Jesus comes and says, I'm the king, I'm the ruler, I'm in charge. And we say, no, you're not. We want to put... Jesus on trial rather than submit to his kingship, his lordship over everything. And so again, we've seen these two trials, a theological trial, a political trial. But now third, let's look at the cynical trial, this third trial. And this is what we see in verse 6 to 12. Because Jesus now, he's been before the, the Sanhedrin, he's been before Pilate. And Pilate finds out that he's from Galilee. And Herod has jurisdiction in Galilee. And so he thinks, great, this is the opportunity to abdicate my own responsibility, that I don't think this guy is guilty, but I don't want to stir up this, this crowd or create a riot. And so I'll let it be somebody else's problem, which is, of course, a horrible model of leadership, but often how it works. Let, this, let somebody else deal with it. I don't want to. And so he sends... Jesus over to Herod, who is in town for Passover. And you say, well, who is Herod? This is Herod Antipas. This is the son of Herod the Great, the, the famous Herod from the Christmas story. But this is the, the Herod who married his brother's wife. This is the Herod who was confronted by John the Baptist. This is the Herod who arrested 
John the Baptist. This is the Herod who was seduced by his wife's daughter. And then at her behest, through his wife, beheaded John the Baptist and brought his head on a silver platter. This is a bad guy. This is an unjust man. This is someone who, who killed the, the greatest human prophet, merely human prophet in history. But you can see his cynicism about Jesus, that he's excited that Jesus is coming. It says that he had wanted to see Jesus. He had heard rumors. And he wasn't looking sincerely to be changed by Jesus, but he wanted to see a, a miracle. He wanted to see something interesting. He wanted to be entertained. He wanted to bring something interesting into his life for the day. But when Jesus arrives and he begins to ask questions, Jesus remains silent, doesn't say a word. It must have been very frustrating for Herod as he's asking him questions. Jesus is just standing there. And what happens is that Herod realizes this guy isn't a threat. This guy, he's just a buffoon. This, is, this guy's a joke. He's somebody to be made fun of. And so he's mocked by Herod and by his soldiers. They bring a, a lavish robe and they put it on him. And they turn him into the latest comedy skit. They, they turn him into something to, to laugh at. And so again, you see the extreme cynicism. But this is often how Jesus is put on trial in our world, that we can be people or see people who aren't interested in theological questions like the Sanhedrin, people who aren't interested in political questions like Pilate, but people who just want to see something interesting. They just want to, to see a miracle. They want to be entertained in some way. And when Jesus doesn't deliver, then Jesus becomes the joke. And you can think of how many comical depictions of Jesus there are even in our culture. Movies that make fun of Jesus. Comics that make fun of Jesus. How often we can see jokes or even tell jokes ourselves about Jesus. Or, or you know, see somebody with with long hair and a beard and, and laugh that they look like Jesus. And, and I'm thankful that people who make fun of Jesus aren't hunted or killed, as many who make fun of uh, Muhammad face um, death threats. We're, we're thankful for that. But yet we have to take very seriously the, the sense of, of Jesus becoming a joke, being something to be made fun of, something to, to entertain. Because the Jesus of the Bible isn't there for our amusement. And if we come to Jesus with a heart of cynicism and, and that kind of joking skepticism, that what we might see is nothing, that we may not even have the ability to experience the power of Jesus in our lives because we're just there to laugh and to turn it into a joke when, when really the call is to see his sovereignty and his power and his might and to bow down before him and, and worship as the king. But again, we've seen a theological trial, a political trial, a cynical trial. But then all of these come together at the end into a diabolical trial. And really, the, all of these trials have been diabolical before the Sanhedrin, before Pilate, before Herod. 
But now all of these voices come together into one voice calling for the death of the Son of God. The religious assembly comes back before Pilate. Uh, They have the crowd. They've stirred up the crowd. If anyone is misleading the people, it's these religious leaders. And they begin to cry out for Barabbas, uh, a man who committed insurrection and murder to be released in the place of of Jesus, showing that they don't really care about the authority of, of Rome. And then Pilate tries to say, hey, this guy is is innocent. And they cry out again. Again, he defends Jesus. And the third time, he says, what evil has he done? And they cry out, crucify him, crucify him. And then Pilate relents, and he sentences Jesus to death by crucifixion. And and really, if you think about it, that what, what Pilate is doing here is almost worse than many of the others, that that it's wrong to condemn an innocent person thinking that he is guilty, but it can be even worse to condemn someone knowing that they are innocent and yet handing them over, which is what Pilate does in this miscarriage of justice. But we can also, I think, identify with the religious leaders, with the crowd, with Pilate. We say, well, how? How do we join in the, the diabolical voice calling for the death of the Son of God? And it's really what the song, How Deep the Father's Love, puts it, that behold the man upon a cross, my sins upon his shoulder. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. And that's really it, that, that our voices, when we sin, when we do things our way rather than God's way, that our voices join in the, the diabolical voice calling for the death of the, the Son of God, that, that it's our sin that is laid onto the Son of God. Uh, it's, as it says in the song, that it was our sin that held him there until it was accomplished according to the, the sovereign plan and the purpose of God. And we think about that in our lives but then we also see the, the extreme mercy and grace of God that Jesus was willing to be, to be put on trial, to be found guilty, to be abandoned so that we can be forgiven, that we can be accepted as we repent of him and, and trust in him for salvation. And someday when we stand at the, the day of, of judgment, when we stand before the, the Son of Man with the very people who called for his crucifixion, and if we try to stand based on our own goodness on that day, it won't work will be found guilty justly. But when we stand pleading the blood of Christ, looking to him, trusting in his righteousness, then what we will receive on that day is this great acquittal, saying you are innocent because the Son of God took the penalty in our place, that he who knew no sin became sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Let's pray.